I uh, titled this morning's message, The Cross, the Tomb, and the Resurrection. This has been the Passion Week. We started last Sunday, Palm Sunday, where Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the back of a colt. The date was April 6, 32 A.D., And we read that the people that day, that they began to spread their clothes out on the road in front of Jesus. They began to lay palm branches down and they were making a pathway for the king to ride in to Jerusalem on that day. He was going to go right in through the east gate and up onto the temple mount. The people were also rejoicing that day. Uh, I believe at the top of their lungs they were singing out praises to the Lord that their to God that their their king had come. Their king was here. They were looking for this deliverer to come, and he's here. And they began to just cry out these songs of praise. And then five days later, their hopes were crushed. Jesus would spend Friday evening in that upper room with his disciples eating the Passover meal. We call it the Last Supper. Jesus said to his disciples that night, he said, With fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That should have been some words that would have went off in their head. Before I suffer. He told them on numerous occasions that this time would come. His hour had come. It would be on that night that Jesus would be betrayed with a kiss by Judas Iscariot. He was arrested that night in the Garden of Gethsemane as the high priest had sent out the temple guards. And they came there to arrest Jesus. They took him before the high priest. They set him before Pilate. And they tried him and they condemned him to death. The next morning, Jesus would then carry his cross to the place of crucifixion. And and when he got there, he would willfully stretch out his arms. This is what's remarkable about our Lord is that he didn't go kicking and screaming. He willfully laid out his arms so that those Roman soldiers could nail him to that cross. He suffered and died for the sins of the world. He did that for his great because of his great love for you. That afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, we're told that Jesus uttered his last words, those final words on the cross. It is finished. Remarkable words to those of us that know what those words mean. It is finished. And that veil was torn from top to bottom, making access. No longer was there a divide. Now there was access to God. You have access. Isn't that incredible? After Jesus 
was dead there on the cross and pronounced dead, Joseph of Arimathea, he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And he went and he took the body down and they wrapped him up in the strips of linen and put spices in there to prepare him for burial. Now the place that he was going to be put into was a garden tomb. A place that no one had ever been laid before. And Jesus was going to be laid into this tomb. They're going to roll the stone in front of the hole. And here's now the Messiah of Israel being placed in a grave. Jesus was laid in that tomb. The tomb was actually sealed. They requested that. The high priest and the, and the religious leaders requested that that stone be sealed so that no one would be able to, to make a claim that he had come out of that tomb. They sealed it and they placed guards there to watch over it, at least for those three days, because that was his claim. He would rise from the dead. But for us, we know that that's not the end of the story, is it? They placed him in the tomb, they sealed it, they set the guard, but that's not the end of the story. Remember, we read back in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, we're told now Jesus going up to Jerusalem, as he was making his way to Jerusalem, he took his 12 disciples aside on the road one day, and he said, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day, he will rise again. They already have been told that numerous times. It's now early Sunday morning, the first day of the week. And the disciples and the other followers of Jesus, they're now in mourning. Their Messiah, the King of Israel, has been killed by Roman soldiers. I mean, this crushed them. Their hope was gone. They didn't even remember the words of Jesus. They actually went off into hiding. They were fearful. They just saw their Messiah be crucified, and and now they're running in fear. They're in hiding. And I have to think that Peter was still remembering just a few days earlier on that Friday night when Jesus told him, you're going to deny me, Peter. I think he was still reeling from that, thinking about it. It's been said that the five most important chapters in the entire Bible might be Matthew chapter 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. And the reason for that is because within those chapters, it speaks of the greatest event 
that has ever happened in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the capstone of the Bible. It's what our Christian faith stands upon, that Jesus Christ came out of that tomb just as He said that He would, just as the prophets foretold that He would. That's why we're here rejoicing today and Christians all over the world doing the same. How important is the resurrection to us as Christians? One pastor by the name of Adrian Rogers, he was a Southern Baptist minister, he wrote this. He said, The resurrection is not merely important to the historic Christian faith. Without it, there would be no Christianity. It is the singular doctrine that elevates Christianity above all other religions. R.A. Torrey wrote this concerning the resurrection. The crucifixion loses its meaning without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the death of Christ was only the heroic death of a noble martyr. With the the resurrection, it is the atoning death of the Son of God. It shows that death to be of sufficient value to cover our sins, for it was the sacrifice of the Son of God. Think of that. The Son of God, God's Son, sent to earth to die on the cross so that we might live, and then He was resurrected. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 15, verse 13, he says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. We're to be pitied. Because we go out and we tell this world there's hope in Jesus Christ. But how about if you went out and shared the gospel and the resurrection wasn't part of that? You couldn't tell a person that someday they would be raised up. That they'll go, be, go to be with the Lord. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. There would be no, there'd be no joy in that message. No hope. It brings hope to the gospel. To tell people there is a resurrection of the dead. Peter on the day of Pentecost... When he stood up and he preached that message to the multitude of people, he didn't just preach that Christ was crucified. He didn't just preach that alone. He also preached that God had raised up Jesus, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It wasn't possible. Paul also preached the cross... 
He preached the resurrection also. He wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8. He says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Paul knew that hope. This gospel message, which we call the good news of Jesus Christ, it could be summed up in these three words. The cross, the tomb, and the resurrection. You see, the cross that we look at, Jesus hanging on that cross, what does it speak of? It speaks of sacrifice. Jesus, the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. It was the sacrifice. But the cross, it also speaks of sin. Our sin. It speaks of guilt. It speaks of our shame. It speaks of punishment as they beat Him on that cross and hung Him and nailed Him to that cross. It speaks of forgiveness. It speaks of salvation. It speaks of unconditional love. It speaks of redemption. It speaks of reconciliation and grace and mercy. That's the cross as we look to it. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This was already marked out. It's what God had planned from the very foundations of the world that that day would come. The tomb, it speaks of death, doesn't it? It speaks of corruption of the body, decay. It speaks of sorrow. And it also screams lost hope. We all know that feeling. When people pass on, people that we love, these disciples that day, they saw their Messiah be placed into a tomb. He was dead, lost hope. They were mourning. They're in fear. But then we also have the resurrection. And the resurrection speaks of a miracle, doesn't it? It's a miracle that somebody can come out of the grave and come back to life after three days. He's alive. It speaks of hope. It speaks of incorruption. It speaks of glory. It speaks of power. That song we sang, that same power that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead, it dwells in us. It speaks of immortality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42, he says this, The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and then there is a spiritual body. 
And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, or the last Adam, which is speaking of Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. First you have to have the natural, then the spiritual comes. The first man was of the earth and made of dust. The second man, which is another name for Jesus Christ, the second man is the Lord from heaven. As it was... as was the man of dust, another term. As was the man of dust, speaking of Adam, so also are those who are made of dust, and as is the heavenly man, Jesus Christ. So also are those who are heavenly. And as we have bore the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. That we should rejoice in. When you are raised someday in your glorified body and you're in the presence of the Lord for eternity, we're going to see the full fruition of our salvation on that day. Our new body, resurrected bodies with the Lord. That should cause us all to praise the Lord today and to rejoice in what we have in Christ. After the resurrection... We know that Jesus was seen at least 11 times recorded in Scripture over a period of 40 days. 40-day period that Jesus remained after the resurrection here on earth. 11 accounts of him being seen by people with their physical eyes. And we're told that he was even seen in one location at one time of over 500 people at one place. He talked with his disciples. He ate with his disciples. He appeared seemingly out of nowhere on occasions, and he had disappeared at times through closed doors. And then we read in Acts 1 that he ascended up gradually from the Mount of Olives there in Jerusalem until the clouds received Jesus out of the disciples' sight. And you know what? All of that was done for you and I. It was done for them. So that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what he claimed would happen did. He came out of that tomb. He's alive. And he ascended up into heaven. We saw it with our literal eyes. He ascended up into heaven. The ascension is another important part. Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. And because he ascended, he's coming back. He's coming back to this earth the same way in which he left. Paul writing to the Corinthians, he declared this message of the gospel. It's what we have as believers. It's what we we carry around in our hearts. Paul wrote in 15.1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand by which you were also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 
And he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen of Cephas, which was a name for Peter. Then by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Don't you love that title? When a believer falls asleep, I mean dies, they just fall asleep. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And after that, he was seen by James, the half-brother of Jesus, and then by all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me, Paul says, speaking of himself, as by one bore out of due time. At the right time, I saw it. We read Jesus' final words to his disciples in Luke's Gospel. In chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus said to his disciples, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened up their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And this is what he said to them. These are his final words. Then he said to his disciples, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer uh, and to raise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remissions of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And you were witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That was Jesus' final words, the great commission to go out and to take now this message. It's the same message we have. It's the same Holy Spirit that came upon them in the book of Acts that God has placed in our hearts that we call upon him to baptize us in his Holy Spirit that we might be witnesses of him also in this world with power. Now look in your Bibles at John, John's Gospel chapter 20. We read in verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, this is Sunday now, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early and while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. We have Mary, Mary Magdalene, being the first one to arrive there at the tomb on that very early Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala, was a woman that is only mentioned 12 times in the Gospels. She was a disciple. She was of Jesus. She was a follower of Jesus. She was also there at the crucifixion, according to Mark 15.40. And now she's the first one at the tomb. In Mark 16, 9, after Jesus rose, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene. And this Mary Magdalene was the one that Jesus cast out seven demons from. Isn't that incredible about our Lord? This is the way God does things. I'm going to take this woman whom I casted out, who I set free from demon possession... 
And I'm going to allow her to be the first one to come to the tomb on that Easter morning. Isn't that incredible? John's gospel doesn't tell us about the earthquake like the other gospels tells us. It doesn't tell us about the angel rolling away the stone that covered the entrance into the tomb or the angel that was sitting on the stone. It doesn't tell us that here. But its focus here is on Mary Magdalene. We read in verse 2, Then Mary Magdalene ran after she had seen that tomb open. She ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved. And that person that is always referred to as the other disciple was John. John himself. She runs to Peter. She runs to John. And Mary says to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where, they have, where they've laid him. That was her first perception. Somebody took his body, took him away. And so then we see in verse 3 that Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, John, they both take out of the house where they were and they begin to make their way to the tomb. And so they both ran together, and the other disciple, John, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And then John, in verse 5, comes to the tomb, and we're told that he stooped down, and he just simply stayed outside of the tomb, and he looked inside. He didn't go in. He just simply looked. He saw we're told here. Now, what's interesting about the wording, and I think this is important to see, that the word saw here in the Greek is the word blepo. It's that he saw the clothes lying there. That's what John saw. He just saw the linen that was lying inside the tomb. But it was just a visual thing. He wasn't putting two and two together. He, he knew the stone had been rolled away. He just didn't go into the tomb. He stood on the outside looking in, and he just simply saw He had no real, at that point, I don't believe, any real perception of what has taken place here. He didn't know yet what he was going to come to realize in a moment. I believe that he probably stood on the outside, probably because every Jew knew that it was against the law to walk inside a tomb. You'd be defiled just to walk inside of a tomb. Then maybe he stood out for that reason. Maybe it was fear. Maybe it was just respect for the dead. But he stayed outside of the tomb just simply looking in. And then Peter comes along. Look at your Bible, verse 6. Then Peter comes following John, and we're told that he just goes right on in. Get out of my way, John. He just rushes right inside of the tomb. He goes inside, and then it says that he saw. Or the old King James says, he seeth. And this word is a different word. It's a different Greek word. He sees the linen cloths lying there. And then he sees that the handkerchief that had been around Jesus' head was not lying at the other end with the linen cloth, but it's folded together in a place by itself. 
He sees just the head wrapping folded up by itself in another location. You see, Peter was beginning to see the details. This doesn't look like somebody that just robbed this grave. Why would a robber go and just strip the garments off and then neatly fold that handkerchief and lay it down at the head? It doesn't make sense. He was looking, he was seeing, but he was seeing something. It was, this word actually means to behold something intently. He was just focusing in on what he was seeing there. Peter, in a sense, became a spectator for a moment. But then, we're told, the other disciples, speaking of John in verse 8, he now comes into the tomb. He comes inside, and, and then he, we're told that he saw, and what? And he believed. Now all of a sudden, the light bulb's coming on. Now all of a sudden, John himself is in the tomb. And the word saw there is actually another Greek word. It's, it's oida. It means to perceive something intellectually. It's actually divine knowledge that has been imparted. All of a sudden, the light bulb comes on, and all of a sudden, he's able, with this fullness of knowledge by the Holy Spirit, giving it to him, I believe, to able to see. He saw, and then he believed. Verse 9 says, For as yet they did not know the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And I thought... Didn't know. Yes, you knew. He told you many times that he was going to rise from the dead the third day. They did not yet know the scriptures. They didn't have that divine knowledge. It's the same Greek word. They didn't have that that fullness of understanding yet. That he must rise again from the third day. Then, verse 10, the disciples were told they went away to their own houses. They went to their homes. They left the tomb and went back. The body's gone. John had this going on in his mind. They they, they saw what they saw, but they still didn't get all the picture of it. They haven't seen the risen Lord. But Mary, we're told in verse 11, she stood outside the tomb weeping. Apparently, after she had told Peter and John, she came back to the tomb. And she's standing outside of the tomb weeping. And as she was weeping, we're told that she stooped down and she looked herself into the tomb. And she saw two angels that were in white sitting. One at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. I've walked into the tomb. I've been to Israel and walked into the tomb that many believe could be the tomb that Jesus was laid in. People have a couple different locations. But the point is that when I walked into that tomb, it was such an awesome feeling. Just, Just the thought of it, to be standing in that tomb where our Lord may have laid. But you know what was most exciting about it? It's empty. 
There's nothing there except a hewed out stone where the body would have laid inside of that tomb. It's just a time. We had a worship time outside in the garden tomb there. Worshiping the fact that our Lord is alive. He's alive today. Then the angels that were there at the sitting there inside the tomb, they said to Mary, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. There's that word no again. She didn't have that full understanding of what was going on. We don't know where they've laid him. We don't know where they took him. She wasn't yet comprehending at all. And now when she had said this, she turned around, we're told, and she saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Again, the same word. She didn't know who she was standing there in front of. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away myself. I'll come and get him. Just tell me where he's at. The first thing we see in her words that she says to who she thinks is the gardener is her devotion. Where is he? She's still in her mind. He's dead somewhere. He's laying out her devotion to Jesus. Where is he? I'll go get him. The first words of Jesus after the resurrection were to a woman in a garden. That's what we see. A woman in a garden where the tomb was. And what's interesting is that we read in Genesis chapter 3, the first book of the Bible, that it was a woman in a garden who was first tempted. And now it's a woman in the garden who Jesus speaks to. You know what's incredible about our Lord? Is that nothing that this world has messed up, all of the sin and the corruption that's in this world, nothing is messing up the plan of God. He had it marked out from the very beginning when that woman fell to temptation in the garden. And then he was going to have this woman, Mary Magdalene, come to that tomb on that Easter morning and to be able to say those words to her. Here's a, isn't that incredible? Our Lord's plan and how it's all worked out precisely. But then look at your Bibles at verse 16. Jesus says to Mary, Mary, Mary. And she turns and says to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. We know in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 3, Jesus said these words, My sheep hear my voice. Mary knew his voice. She knew that's all it took. Mary. It makes me ask the question to myself and ask you the question. How much does the Lord have to speak to you before you realize 
God's speaking to me. That's him. He's saying something to me. He just simply had to say to Mary, Mary. And she knew that's all it took. Mary. Jesus said to her, and, and, and just think of it. What, what was that like at that moment? I, I have to think that, that she was so emotionally charged at that moment. When she heard him say Mary, and that she was so emotionally charged at that moment that she probably just ran up to the Lord to grab hold of him. And Jesus in verse 17 says to her, Do not cling to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Go tell them, Mary, I have not yet ascended. There are people that different views on why Jesus is saying don't cling to me. I just think it was the excitement of Mary. I think she was overwhelmed at the moment of the thought that this is Jesus. He is alive. Put yourself in that place. Go tell the brethren. Go tell them, Mary. She becomes the first witness. Go out and tell them I'm alive. And Mary, in verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and she told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Wow. And then that same day at evening, we're told, being the first day of the week, this whole day has gone on. And when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, assembled there, they were there for fear of the Jews, we're told. Jesus came and he stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be to you. Don't you love those words? Peace be to you. How many of us this morning need this peace? Right now. Whatever your life circumstances might be, whatever's going on in your life right now, I believe Jesus wants to give you his peace. The peace that allows you to move forward in confidence. God's in control. Whenever Jesus came in, it's kind of like when he walked into that room, it's like that fear for a moment, it was gone. They weren't thinking about the Romans out there looking for them. And they were. Jesus was now standing in our midst and he's saying, Peace be with you. If you don't have the peace of God in your heart this morning, you can have it. You just simply need to say, Lord, I need your peace. He's the God of all peace. And he wants to give that to us. In verse 20, we're told that when Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were told were glad when they saw the Lord. I don't even think that that word glad gives it justice. They were thrilled. They were over the top. Just over, here he is, he's alive. 
And so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. Have you ever had somebody raised from the dead and standing in front of you? Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, look what it says in your Bibles. This is important. Verse 22. It says that he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Do you think when Jesus did that and he breathed upon them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit, that they did? I believe that they became, in a sense, what we call being born again. That the Holy Spirit came and made residence in their body. When you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and invited him to come in, his spirit came and dwelt inside of you. They hadn't experienced that before. You have that if you know the Lord. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to tell them, I'm going to give you this authority. He says, "For if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He says, I give you the authority to go out in my name, to go out and tell this world the gospel. Tell them their sins can be forgiven. You have the authority to do that, church. To go and tell somebody based upon what Jesus Christ tells me in his word, you have the authority to tell somebody, you know what, if you ask Christ to forgive you of your sin, he will forgive you. He'll give you eternal life. But if you reject him, if you turn away from the truth, if you say, I don't want that, you have the ability to warn. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Remember, this is doubting Thomas. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord, Thomas. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the prints of the nails, and I put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. How many of you were like that at one point in your life? You're going to have to tell, give me something more than that. You're going to have to show me a mirror. Show me something. I believe in this Jesus. Believe, you know, I won't believe unless I can see something with my eyes. We know that after eight days in verse 26, that his disciples were again inside, and Thomas this time was with them. And Jesus came, and the doors were shut, and they stood in the midst. And he stood there in the midst, and he said again to them, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, I think this was, this was now the time for Thomas. He came back for the one. Aren't you glad that he came just for you? He came there for Thomas. And he said to Thomas, Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side, Thomas. And then he says this, and it's really like a gentle rebuke. Do not be unbelieving, Thomas, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. He allowed me to see 
He put his hands up. He, he showed me where they ran the spear into his side. His grace. He, he, he showed Thomas mercy and grace. You doubted. You questioned. And I'm going to show you because I love you, Thomas. I'm going to give you what you need. Here it is. And here's Thomas, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Has anyone in this room ever seen Jesus with your physical eyes? Did you see the nail prints and the, where they ran him through in the side with your physical eyes? You haven't, yet you believe. The Lord is honored by those who don't see, yet they believe. And it's not blind faith. He gave us all the proof. Forty days. I'm alive. I came out of it just as I said that I would. Take that message to the world. And it's still 2,000 years later. That same gospel message has the same power that it did 2,000 years ago. In verse 30, it says that truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's the reason why the Gospel of John was written, this verse right here. All of what John wrote, I'm going to declare to you, I'm going to give you this testimony that all of these signs, all these wonders, everything that Jesus did, that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you can have life through his name. I want to close with what Paul wrote to the Romans. In Romans chapter 4, Paul used Abraham as a, uh, an example of a person that is saved by faith alone, justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. He says that Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced, that's important to know, being fully convinced that he who had promised, he was also able to perform all the promises that God has given you. Are you convinced that he's able to perform it? Will he come through with everything, even to his return? Are you convinced of that? And therefore, it was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Why? Because he believed God, that God was able to, from his seed, be able to do this a miraculous thing that he and his mind and Sarai couldn't even imagine that God could even do this. And he believed and God accounted it to him for righteousness. And now it was not written for Abraham's sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us, all of us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Do you believe that? That Jesus Christ is alive today? 
And if so, then he has imputed his righteousness to you. You have been justified by faith. You've been made right in the eyes of God by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And who was delivered up. That delivered up is the cross. He was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. He had to be risen up. He had to be taken to the cross. And he had to, he must raise from the dead. That's the gospel. It's what gives us life. How important is the resurrection to our faith and the good news of Jesus Christ? Everything rests upon it. Everything. Remember when Jesus was there in Bethany where Lazarus had already uh, been raised from the dead. He was four days in the tomb. And Jesus had this discussion with Lazarus' sister, Martha. Martha said to Jesus, I know that my brother Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know that. I believe that. But this is what Jesus said to her. But Jesus said to Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Did you get that? Will never die. Do you believe this? Is what Jesus said to her. Do you believe this? That same question gets asked to us today. When when you boil it all down to it, do you believe this? Do you believe everything you say you believe in? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That he's alive today, that he's coming back? Do you believe this? If so, your resurrected life began the day that you gave your life to Christ. You shall never die. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. You just fall asleep. You're in the presence of the Lord. That's the rejoicing that we have this morning. That's the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.